Proverbs chapter 9. Wisdom has built her house. She has set up its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her servants and she calls from the highest point of the city. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, come, eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise and they will love you. Instruct the wise and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous and they will add to their learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For through wisdom your days will be many and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, your wisdom will reward you. If you are a mocker, you alone will suffer. Folly is an unruly woman. She is simple and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on in their way. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know that the dead are there, that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. Well, how did that video strike you and the Bible reading before that? Both actually seek to win you over and portray a view of wisdom that seems valuable to you if you desire to live the good life. We'll be spending most of our time in the Word of God today, as you might expect, but there's a lot to love about that video. The wonder of learning, travel, good food and wine with friends, children's laughter, the desire to do good to others, an appreciation of art, literature, beautiful sunsets, the taste of brie, good coffee. To really love others and desire to be truly loved. As a video in terms of conveying a message, I think it's stunning. I first saw it a few years back and I've watched it many times since and each time I watch it I find something in it that I find inspirational. Yet I've always watched it knowing at its core the underlying worldview could not be more different than my own. It's a view of wisdom and where it's found that stands at odds with God's Word. It does get straight to the point, living is difficult It's full of sticky situations and exceptions to truisms, which is a profound and timely turn of phrase as we study the book of Proverbs, which itself contains many such truisms, a truism being something that is generally but not always true. From a biblical worldview, it's the book of Job and Ecclesiastes in wisdom literature that stand alongside the book of Proverbs and explore the complex depth of the exceptions that we face in life. And the next line of the video gets to the heart of it and where we are going. It says that while living is difficult, quote, you don't need it to be spelled out in a book, to live by strong moral principle. 
cut shot to what looks like someone reading a Bible, then an image of the sky going dark over a church steeple. Before listing off many beautiful attributes and desires that we all here could find much common cause with. I do want to come back and explore this further at the end of the sermon, but for now, just take away the main point. The video is saying, come follow me, find wisdom, be a purpose person of real depth and explore what it means to live life to the full. A life to the full without reference to God. We're told we're a wonder of evolution. The human race is a light burning brightly in the universe. Life's a carnival ride of ups and downs. It's a game of chance. So do good and be good. Whereas Proverbs is saying, find wisdom and life from God, work out what it means, rightly understood, to live in fear of Him. That's the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding, as Sina reminded us this morning. To live well, to receive favour from God, which is where we find real life. We'll draw out the contrast some more and evaluate the merits of both after we've had a look at our passage of the day together. Last week, if you were here, we saw in chapters 1 to 3 that point about the fear of the Lord being the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction, verse 7 of chapter 1. And the main point I tried to make from chapter 2 was that understanding what it means to fear the Lord isn't a three-point proposition. It's something that has to be toiled for, a worldview, a connection to reality that is brought about by applying our hearts to understanding, storing up God's commands, calling out for insight, searching for it like treasure. In the uh, studies and in the daily Bible readings, which you have, if you haven't got them yet, do grab a copy today, but those who did take them away would have seen the extended call of chapter 4 to pursue wisdom at any cost. Then an extended warning against embracing folly in its many forms, leaning on an image uh, that we kind of get as we look, as we observe our world of that issue of being sort of seduced by folly into adultery. And then we make the turn, chapter 8, where we begin, uh, where we're going to begin looking at uh, today with yet another compelling call to all mankind to embrace God's wisdom personified, once more calling out to us. We did start in chapter 9 today, so it'd be good to have your Bibles open to chapter 8 because we're going to cover some of that before we get to our reading. And I believe that is on page 995, it would be. It'd be great to have that open. So have a look with me at chapter 8. As uh, wisdom personified, as Lady Wisdom as we'll call her, and we'll contrast her with Dame Folly, just to try not to get too confused. But it's wisdom and folly personified. And wisdom calls out, verse 6, with trustworthy things to say speaking only what is right, that are self-evidently good to the discerning, those who seek knowledge from Lady Wisdom, learn how to fear the Lord. And verse 13 of our picture (coughs) uh, fills out what it means, what this fear of the Lord means, just a little bit more. Verse 13 we're told, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behaviour, and perverse speech. 
that's a verse that really covers its basis quite well in regard to uh, what God's wisdom hates. Evil behaviour is a pretty big catch-all, perverse speech covers a lot too. And as you grow older, you realise more and more just how much damage we can do with our words. But this verse also touches on the posture of the heart, with pride and arrogance being singled out as the attitudes that God hates. Now let's just kind of own up to it. The phrase, fear of the Lord, is something that worries us, particularly when it comes to explaining our faith to others. If you missed last week, I would encourage you to catch up online. And if you're here just checking out who Jesus is, or indeed listening along online, this is the point to tune in, not to tune out. Because it's super important to get this right for all of us, if we're going to get what it means uh, in the book of Proverbs. So let's first try and understand the culture that we live in, and then we'll explore why this jars so much with us. And how this concept of the fear of the Lord jars in our current society. I started listening to a podcast a couple of months ago, it's called This Cultural Moment by a guy called Mark Sayers. Mark's a pastor from Melbourne and he's interviewed on the podcast by a guy called John from Portland in the USA and his voice sounds suspiciously like the Bible Project guy, if you've listened along uh, to those with your kids. Anyway, in the first episode they discuss this concept of the changing cultures down through the millennia. They talk of this concept of first culture, second culture and third as we think about our world. First culture refers to the times and places where there was a deep sense of the spiritual forces, multiple gods, often a deep tension and fear and many cultures of course left that many years ago, centuries ago but it still does persist in some today. But think of the Roman Empire before Christianity or many of the tribal animistic cultures around our world today, with this concept of multiple gods to be appeased and sacrificed to. Second culture refers to the great monotheistic cultures, the ones deeply influenced and shaped by Judaism, Christianity and then Islam. Much of the Middle East today is what you would still call second culture, Certainly our heritage here in Australia, many of our laws, our culture, our legal and parliamentary systems were deeply shaped during the years when Christianity was acknowledged as the basis of our society. Third culture is perhaps best described as the cultures around the world that are hard at work leaving the idea of God behind and almost defining themselves against God, they're publicly rejecting Him cleansing every reference to God from public life, whether it be in Parliament or in our schools or marginalising those who still follow Him. Now, it's not a new thing, it's been happening for a few centuries now, it's just that Christians have only recently woken up uh, to the pace of which God is being now expunged from public life here in Australia. So then, it's a great challenge to be a Christian and hold to a worldview of an all-powerful God that dearly loves us And uh, part of all that, uh, how that works is for us to sort of humbly defer to Him, to seek His wisdom diligently, to look to Him to develop real character in us and live by His definition of good and evil, what's right and wrong. It's hard to kind of hold that basic Christian worldview in a society that is increasingly saying, no, we've moved past God now and we're rewriting the book, removing God's wisdom. 
God's standard of right and wrong, on acceptable behaviour, sexual practice, ethics and importantly, the attitudes of the heart. Whatever your personal view of same-sex marriage, it's but one example of a societal shift to divide itself against the previous view that was deeply shaped by the Bible's view on marriage and family. As I said, this has been happening for many years now, but we kind of get that it's hard to live as a Christian in a cultural moment like this. As chapter 3 last week encouraged us to trust in God with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding, submit all our ways to God and not be wise in our own eyes, fear the Lord and shun evil. We do so in a time where society is defining itself against such an idea, where Christians are pitied at best, yet increasingly so, often despised, for being so unenlightened, so regressive, even considering the option to rightly understood, fear the Lord as the basis of a worldview. For us all, however, and particularly if you're just checking out who Jesus is, note the logic of Proverbs so far and the placement of this concept from verse 13 in the middle of such a chapter, such a wonderful chapter as chapter 8. The logic was set up for us in chapter 1 to the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and destruction. But to those who submit to God humbly and find access to God's wisdom, listen to how good it is described in verse 14 onwards, where we hear, counsel and sound judgment are mine, I have insight, I have power, by me kings reign, verse 15, and by me princes govern, verse 16. We're still in chapter 8. And if you haven't already, please do open your Bibles, because we're going to read through a section now from... Uh, chapter 8, verse 17 on page 995, listen to these very moving words from God as He describes what it's like to live with Him as the basis of our worldview, to rightly understand the fear of the Lord. Where we read from Lady Wisdom, verse 17, I love those who love me and those who seek me find me. With me, are riches and honour, enduring wealth and prosperity. My fruit is better than fine gold. What I yield surpasses silver. I walk in the way of righteousness along the paths of justice, bestowing a rich inheritance on those who love me and making their treasuries full. This is not the wisdom of an easily angered God, unpredictable and vindictive. It is from a God who loves us and longs to bless us and all humanity in abundance. It's the wisdom of an infinitely powerful God whose wisdom is so much greater than ours. Yet out of love, and particularly through the book of Proverbs, He gives us access to it. A God who we read wove His wisdom into the very fabric of the world and how life works best. I'll read from verse 22 to the end of the chapter, read along with me these incredibly moving words to consider just how much God loves His creation. 
as the wisdom of God personified speaks of itself. Verse 22, the Lord brought me forth as the first of his works. Before his deeds of old, I was formed long ages ago, at the very beginning when the world came to be. When there were no watery depths, I was given birth. When there were no springs overflowing with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the world or its fields or any of the dust of the earth, I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon of the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the foundations of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the the earth, then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in the whole world and delighting in mankind. Now then, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Do not disregard it. Blessed are those who listen to me, watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway. For those who find me find life and receive favour from the Lord. But those who fail to find me harm themselves. All who hate me love death. (coughs) If you're here today, or listening along online, checking out who Jesus is perhaps, how this all might be of benefit to you, you have to see the logic at least that if all this is true, if there really is a Creator God who deeply loves us, who is infinitely wise, who wove that wisdom into the creation of the world, who calls us, wanting us to find Him and His wisdom to find real life, that it makes perfect sense for the Christians here in the room to humbly, to sort of humble ourselves before this Creator God, to seek His wisdom with great fervour and persistence and to see that it's folly to ignore Him and very unwise for our world to declare so proudly we've moved on from God. And in our arrogance to find ourselves, our community, our standards of right and wrong against Him. Whether this is all true or not deeply matters for everyone in the room today. We have a big choice to make whether to build our lives upon the wisdom of God or disregard it and build upon another foundation. Jesus, God's wisdom in human flesh, made this exact point, which was recorded for us in Matthew chapter 7. I think I've got it there on screen uh, for you, Jen. A very familiar turn of phrase from those who regularly read Jesus' words. Matthew seven twenty four to 28. As Jesus says, Therefore... Everyone who hears these words of mine, puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet, it did not fall, because it had its foundation on rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, is like a foolish man 
who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Because of the great delight God takes in humanity, his longing to bless us and lead us to life, it was his great wisdom to send Jesus to die on a cross to bear the penalty of our sins, our rejection of God upon his shoulders so that God's holy justice can remain intact because sin is punished. Yet all who trust in his substitutionary death and give their lives to follow Jesus, embracing his words, and that includes the whole Bible, can be made right with God and find eternal life. And this very day build our lives upon a very strong foundation, the rock that is our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come to today's reading in chapter 9. We've already had it read to us, but have it open there on page 996. As wisdom personified, we'll call her Lady Wisdom, contrasted with folly, we'll call her Dame Folly... As we see and have had read to us and explored through the kids' talk, the character of these two sort of metaphorical ladies is entirely different. Lady Wisdom has built her house, set up its pillars, she's prepared, she's generous with her meat, with well-blended wine, table already laid out. She's proactive, sending her servants out to call for those looking for wisdom, saying, let all who are simple come to my house. Dame Folly, however is none of those things. She's described, verse 13, as an unruly woman, simple, who knows nothing. Picture her, a far less beautiful sight, slouched against the door of her house, calling out, let all who are simple come to my house. There are two competing calls from both wisdom and folly personified, given to us, represented as two very differently motivated women. But the call itself at first has the exact same content, word for word. Let all who are simple come to my house. It is indistinguishable. Yet the intent and end goal of both could not be more different. Lady Wisdom wants to give you insight, verse 6. Lady Wisdom knows that mockers will always mock, but the wise love instruction... And by listening to her, we'll add to their learning. And as the bookend to all we've seen in these first nine chapters that set all uh, the rest of Proverbs up for us, there's an exclamation point that we are not to miss in verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now, Dame Folly's call has a very different endgame in mind and intent to lead us into evil. To those who have no sense, she says, verse 17, stolen water is sweet, food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know the dead are there, that our guests are deep in the realm of the dead. Now, it seems a little bit too obvious, doesn't it? Surely we would spot such folly. But remember, this is a great summary of chapters 1 to 9. If you haven't read it, please go home and read it. Through the middle of these chapters, we've had a much 
more detailed look at the seductive power of folly. Using the illustration of a form of folly, we get the logic of as it explores adultery. And it's tried to show us what you might want to call a bait and switch. Folly coming to you at a time where perhaps you're worn down, feeling dead to the world, lifeless in the monotony of things. And then a new person comes along who has time to listen to you, who you feel really gets you. There's excitement, there's new possibilities. Unlike at home where there's bills to pay, the school run, home maintenance, perhaps an underlying resentment. Then at the office, a simple smile brings warmth. As hands brush past each other, it's like electricity flowing, bringing life and colour to a darkened world. So as the bait is held out before you, it seems so tempting. Yet when you indulge, then comes the switch. You didn't realise there was a hook there. And what you get is a loss of honour and standing amongst the family and friends that you love. Your wealth divided in half and often then shared with strangers. Folly never delivers. It is always a bait and switch. And Proverbs chapter 9 raises the stakes. We are meant to realise the danger when we see folly mimicking wisdom's exact call. But Dame Folly has ill intent combined with great skill in seduction. God is not there. You don't need to search for His wisdom with such diligence. You don't need to humble yourself before a holy God. Wisdom is easy, do good to others. Together we can find an easier road to wholeness. Let's pursue justice together, equality, learning, progress. Together we can create a better life without God. You don't need forgiveness. Guilt is something that you can let go of. It's been impressed upon you unfairly. You are special. You have a good heart. Come follow me. Let's pursue life together. But folly does not deliver. And folly never had an intent on delivering. Consider for a moment the rather utopian ideal put forward in our video. We see it all around in our movies, in our advertising. The freedom held out before us to embrace a stimulating career while sipping on the most ethical cup of coffee in the world, in a beautiful part Scandi, part hipster cafe, working on your $3,000 MacBook Pro. (laughs) Before returning home to the love of your life and having all the time in the world to spend with your kids, the financial freedom to pursue travel, learning, and to endlessly entertain with good food and drink. Yet to pursue that life, you need a fair bit of wealth, You also need to live in a wealthy country with strong borders to give you the space to pursue it, only letting in a small number of refugees. And your life is actually built on the back 
of a low-paid factory worker in Vietnam who made your shoes, the lonely seafarers missing their family as they shipped your shoes and your MacBook from Asia. I have a MacBook, by the way, I'm not shooting down Mac owners. (laughs) It also stands on the back of the low-paid truck driver trapped close to the poverty line, working extraordinary long hours, almost falling asleep at the wheel trying to put food on the table for their kids. The logic and economics of this utopian ideal simply don't work. A good life for you never means a good life for everyone under this worldview. And to cope with the guilt this creates, we tell ourselves we've worked harder, we're generous, we blame the government, world powers, evil dictators, they're the problem... We lament the drop in our government's aid budget for the poor, which has been astounding over the last decade, by the way. We'll express a little outrage on our shameful treatment of refugees. But it's us who expect the government to be generous on the one hand, yet create the economic miracle of lower taxes, higher wealth for us, better health services to keep us alive for longer, more money for schools, better social security, more financial assistance for daycare so we can work longer and longer hours, amassing ourselves higher debt levels than every generation before us. We widen the gap between the rich and the poor and as we explore this with such gusto and fall short of this utopian ideal, we grapple with spiralling rates of poor mental health. I could go on but I think I've made the point. It's a total bait and switch to be sold, live a great life. I know you want to live forever, but embrace the idea, be at peace of slipping off into the world of the eternal quiet, as our video so beautifully put it. Not knowing that we actually are created for eternity by a God who delights in us, who loves us, and longs to give us wisdom, who has already done everything necessary for us to be reconciled to him through the death of his son, Jesus, on the cross. Only by giving ourselves to him, embracing his path to wisdom, building our world around him, can we find life. Folly entices us away from this truth and little do her followers know that it's leading people by the, I was going to say thousands, but millions and indeed billions to an unnecessary death and to come before a holy God unjustified with the weight of our sin borne on our shoulders when it could have been born on Jesus. Little do Folly's guests know that the dead are there. Folly's guests are deep in the realm of the dead. It is the ultimate and most tragic bait and switch. Whereas wisdom... God's wisdom offers us life while at the same time hating evil, providing salvation from its penalty. 
with God sending his son to wipe it away out of great love by dying on the cross to bear sin's penalty, calling us to build our lives on the foundation he lies, the solid rock that Jesus is. And the end goal is so much more beautiful. Our experience today is so much more beautiful. We can experience the storms of life knowing that we will not be swept away. We can experience the joys and the struggles with confidence. There is so much good in that video that I love, but it falls so far short of the beauty of the picture God actually offers us. To use its imagery and adjust the worldview, you can hold on to that baby after a night of little sleep, watching a new day at dawn, coffee in hand, knowing that there's so much more, this child is so much more than evolution's highest point burning brightly in the universe, that we're instead holding the pinnacle of God's creation, where that child was made by God for a God who rejoices in that little life, a God who delights in humanity, who wants us to live under him with a great promise of eternity and blessing. We simply do not have to resign ourselves to shaking our heads at our broken records of failure, war and tragedy. We can trust in a God who has promised to wipe it all away upon Jesus' return where justice will be done. We're called to be a part of God building his kingdom here on earth where the good life for us doesn't come at the expense of other people. But rather we take up the call to live self-sacrificial lives, giving over our time, our energy, our resources for the sake of others, good. Sending missionaries to all corners of the globe, planting as many churches as we can in our city to proclaim this great news of the gospel of Jesus. Wisdom and folly's call to the good life can seem so similar at first. And there is much to love in that video and aspire to. But wisdom's call at its heart is very different and leads you down a very different path to get there. Once you realise the danger, the seductiveness of folly's call, the real need to pursue God's wisdom and with all your heart reject folly, seeing that living in the fear of the Lord is a beautiful and life-giving exercise, then we're ready to mine chapters 10 to 29 of Proverbs for all its beauty, all its wisdom, to find that wisdom that God has made available to us and find life. I commend the book of Proverbs to you and the reading guides. I'll, I'll be praying for you in the weeks ahead as you continue to look through Proverbs as a church as I hand over to Carl now, but let's close this time right now in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your wisdom you've written it down and recorded it for us in the book of Proverbs, where it's nuanced by Job and Ecclesiastes, where it's actually written into the very fabric of the world that you have created. 
we thank you that true wisdom personified is found in our living and active Lord Jesus Christ who calls us to build our entire lives on Him as our solid rock. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here who hear these competing calls from folly and wisdom, almost indistinguishable as we've explored in that video, that by the power of your Spirit, they would find true wisdom that comes from you and find life. Please, Lord, as we explore together over the coming weeks, help everyone here to see that this concept of the fear of the Lord is not a thing to reject, but it's a beautiful, life-giving call to embrace. It's so rooted in your character of love and justice that you delight in humanity and long to bless us. Please help us through diligence store up your commands to search for your wisdom like treasure, to apply it in all aspects of life, in our homes, in our neighbourhoods, in our workplaces in our private life and thoughts, in our personal battles with sin, help us to embrace wisdom and reject folly in all of its forms. And in doing so, we might not only find real life for ourselves, but that we might live for the sake of others and bring the true life of uh, the life-giving words of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to many across our city and across our world in our time. Please bless us by allowing us to be part of this ongoing march of your wisdom into this world, led by our chief shepherd, our life-giving Lamb of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray all of these things. Amen. Now, Matt, first, first question today yep. is, how, this, this topic of the fear of the Lord, yep. how would you explain that to a non-believer or someone who's just inquiring about who Jesus is? Yeah, what I tried to do today was acknowledge that that is a term that kind of uh, jars with us and explore that a bit. And I think as I spent, I spent a few months on uh, Proverbs, I don't get the, the, the pleasure of being able to do that with every book of the Bible that we teach, but it was kind of like our feature series uh, this year at Proverbs. And pretty much everyone, whether whatever video you watch or whatever commentary you read, this first time this concept of the fear of the Lord comes up, people kind of rush to explain it and say, don't worry, you don't need to, you know, it's not a bad thing and it's um, just acknowledging, you know, try and in three points uh, kind of get it across. And I must admit, when I first, you know, I'd spent my months in Proverbs and then I came to write the first sermon on chapters 1 to 3, I had in my opening in, in uh, chapter 1, which was last week, you know, that three-point explanation of the fear of the Lord. Yet it was when I came to Proverbs 2, I thought, oh, you know, how can you be so silly, Matt? The, um, because it, it's Proverbs uh, 2, 1 to 5, which we touched on uh, last week, that in my mind, it's on page 986 if you've got it there, encourages us against having that kind of three-point explanation of what the fear of the Lord is because it says, my son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom, you know, all the calling out, crying out, if you look for it as silver, verse 5, then you will understand 
uh, the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So it seems to caution us, whether as a preacher or as someone seeking to explain the fear of the Lord, with explaining it away too easily. So, if I was in the workplace and someone said, oh, you know, I listened along to that sermon you recommended I listened to during the week and I don't know about this fear of the Lord business, doesn't sound uh, great to me, what is fear of the Lord? I would, now bear in mind I have a good knowledge of Scripture but a terrible memory from where things come from, Um, so I need to kind of store up my little remember, 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 Matt. So I would go to, I'd just say, would you be happy for me just to explain in three minutes uh, what I I think it is? I would go to 2, 1 to 5 and say, that seems to suggest that I can't give you a simple answer on this. I uh, I would then flick to the second half of Proverbs 8 and say, but listen to how good it is described to us. The second part of chapter 8, all that God delighting in humanity, it's a, it's a beautiful picture. The second half of chapter 8 is just a marvellous passage of Scripture and say, it's that good. And then I would just reflect back on your personal experience and then sort of say, well, as someone who follows Jesus, I don't have a simple explanation, I trust it's a beautiful thing and my personal experience is that it is a beautiful thing. And then I think you can, you can perhaps, if you're good with your memory, throw a, a bone in there, which is Proverbs 8.13 that says the fear of the Lord is to, just a, to hate evil and, and things like that. I would sort of say one, you know, one uh, way that I express what this means is to embrace God's definition of what is right and wrong and not sort of sit in judgment on the Bible but sit under it. That's one of many multitude of ways that I understand the fear of the Lord, which I think is a beautiful thing. And then just say, look, you know, look at me, look at my life to see the way you see me acting uh, in the workplace and things like that. This is a beautiful thing. As you look at my life, hopefully you don't see someone cringing in, in fear and terror of God, but loving Him and, and, and kind of wanting to share Him. So that's how I'd kind of go about it. I realise this is recorded, you can go back and <laughs> write notes on that or come back to it at, uh, at some point. But I would caution you away from the three-point um, writing away of it because I think Scripture does. Good, thank you. I'll stop there. <laughs> um, one more question that's uh, come out a little bit from uh, community groups that I've been involved with talking about Proverbs as well. It's a, yep. uh, here's a question. As Christians, we have been given the Holy Spirit. Yep. What role does the Spirit play in helping us to gain wisdom? This is great. I was invited to uh, my the Year 5 classes at Concordia where our, our kids go. Oh, Year 3, it was uh, Sienna's class too. They just said, can you come along and just explain the Trinity for us? And got my <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. And if you can explain it to a Year 3, you can uh, kind of explain it to anyone. But, um, the, uh, but what I said to the kids was, we're told a lot of things about how God, Father, Son and Spirit operates. We're not told everything we want to know. Uh, but we are told some things, and then I just stepped them through a few scriptures. One of those scriptures uh, comes at the end of John uh, 15. Now, in context, Jesus has just talked about the vine and the branches. It's on page 1677, if you uh, want to open it up, John, uh, the end of John 15. Uh, in context, Jesus just told this parable about the vine and the branches, just that intimacy that we need uh, to have with Jesus. Bear in mind, he's just about to leave. This is his departure. I'm going to be with God in heaven now, kind of final fire-up prayer, final instructions to his disciples. And so you've got to have that intimate relationship with me. Uh, this is not going to make you popular with everyone in the world. And then at the end, it says, when the advocate comes, whom I will send from the Father, the Spirit of truth... Who goes out from the Father, he will also, he will testify about me, and you also must testify, for you have been with me uh, from the beginning. 
And there's a bunch of other things that come out in, in John and, and further in Scripture that just paint this picture of Father, Son and Spirit all working together for this common goal. We need to have a very personal, intimate, deep relationship with Jesus. If I take it the Spirit testifies to our hearts about Jesus, as we're told in chapter 5, and as you explore further texts, you know, it leads us into all truth and things like that. I think we're very dependent upon Father, Son and Spirit to take on uh, you know, God's wisdom and build our lives upon Jesus and, and the Spirit, without the Spirit we would have no hope of doing that but I think because we have the Spirit we can have great confidence that God is powerfully at work in us to do it so not to kind of break them down atomistically but just to think Father, Son, Spirit working towards the same goal, testifying to our hearts, testifying to the hearts of those who are yet to believe in Jesus but will when the Gospel is proclaimed. Uh, yeah, the Spirit's very much at work and we're very dependent on Him, and in particularly in implying wisdom. So as that plays out, sometimes you're in situations, and you just feel that little twinge of something going on, and you think, oh, is that entirely right? And then, you know, often I try and suppress that for a few days, and sort of say, oh, no, what I said or did wasn't that bad, and then, sure enough, conviction comes. I think, oh, that was such a silly thing to do, I need to um, ring up that person and apologise. <laughs> That person will show grace to me because we're brothers and sisters in, in Christ and in doing so, you're embracing God's wisdom and rejecting folly. So, there's a few thoughts. Great. Thanks, Thanks so much, Matt.